Well, good morning. Man, aren't you glad you came to church today? I'm glad I came to church today. I'm glad you came to church today. Um, as we begin this morning, I want you to think about something that you either are currently excited about or something you were recently excited about, right? And it could be something relatively small. It could be something very big. You know, there are people in our congregation who are on their way to being married this summer, and I'm walking through that process with them. There are others who are expecting their first child. There are some who are, are looking forward to retirement. You know, we run the full gamut. You know, spring break is next week. Maybe you get to go on a little bit of a vacation. Or maybe you're already retired, and you're in that permanent vacation, and you can go wherever you want, whenever you want, and you can do whatever you want, right? So think about something that you're excited about. For me, there's a couple things that come to mind. One was just this morning as the worship team was going through their rehearsal, their run-through, I got more and more excited about worshiping together as a family of families. And that new song, I had never heard that before, so I was excited about that song. And then I love King of Kings. I mean, that is just like, that's my song right now. And so I knew that was going to be good. And then we went through the first service. I'm like, I get to do that again. So I was excited. And a couple of months ago, I started getting excited about something else. You know how sometimes you get excited for something and the anticipation builds almost to the point that, that you start to wonder if it can possibly live up, right? Well, I started getting excited about this opportunity to go to Zion National Park. I've always wanted to go to Zion National Park. We've driven right by on Interstate 15 like four times and we didn't get to go, and I was going to get to go. And so I started planning and looking at the different trails, and, and I had some friends that were going to come down, and then they didn't end up being able to meet up, so it was just me by myself. Um, and I ended up having a perfect day at Zion National Park. Like, it was blue skies. It was amazing views. Everywhere you turn around, every hike you take, oh, my gosh, there's another, another picture. You know, I took, I think, 359 Pictures and videos in one day, right? No kidding. I just selected them all on my phone. Oh, wow, 359. Might have got a little carried away there. Um, probably better go through them. I have some of those pictures if you want to uh, throw those up there just to give you a picture of what this was like and everywhere you turn. And it was pretty cool when I started out, like 27 degrees, cool. Um, but by mid-afternoon, it was like upper 50s. And when you're hiking, that's shorts weather. So I'm like wearing shorts in southern Utah. It was great. And it was perfect. And that's not always the case, is it? When we anticipate something, like, I don't know, I shared this in the first service, um, and I heard some eye rolls, but, you know, if you watch The Lord of the Rings, you were so excited for The Hobbit, right? Because every one of those movies was just amazing, and it did such a great job with the source material, and yeah, there was a few little things, but overall, it was amazing. Well, I remember going to The Hobbit, and I was so excited. And I went on opening night, and Heather's like, this is ridiculous. You're staying up until midnight to go to a movie that's three hours long? Are you out of your mind? Maybe. And I really felt disappointed about two and a half hours in, because I didn't even realize that they were splitting The Hobbit into three movies, too. I think it was a cash grab. It was a really bad choice, because Lord of the Rings is like this thick. Make three movies. Hobbit's this thick. Three movies? I don't think so. Didn't work. If you love The Hobbit, I'm sorry. Come back next week. I won't trash The Hobbit. I loved the book. I just didn't love the movies. They didn't live up to the anticipation. And sometimes that's the case, right? Like we get so excited that it couldn't possibly live up. And yet other times we get so excited and it's beyond anything that we could hope or imagine. I think that'll 
play into where we go in this message today. We're in our, our Turning Tables series. Um, we're about three weeks into a four-week series, so next week will be the last week, and then we'll be starting something new. Um, but this has been a series where we've been looking at tables for a good reason. You know, we look at tables from a number of different angles because Jesus did a lot of ministry around tables. And throughout history, tables have been places of connection. Tables have been places of fellowship. Tables have been a place where there's mutual sharing, not just of the food that we're eating together, but usually there's some conversation. And tables become a wonderful place to connect with people. Maybe the end of the day and you come back together as a family around a table and you catch up and you converse about things that matter to you. And so far, we've talked about flipping tables and skipping tables. If you missed one of those messages, you can find them online. You can go to our YouTube page, our Facebook page. You can go to our website. We've got an app. We've made it really easy to find those messages if you happen to miss a week. And they're also really easy to share. So if you hear something in a message and somebody comes to mind, you can share that message with them very simply and very easily through those means. And I had to laugh. Uh, We had a family over for dinner on Friday night and in the midst of an epic game of Uno Attack. How many of you have played Uno Attack? It's like Uno, only way worse because half of the time when you have to push the little button, you get like 15 cards, not just one or two or four or whatever it is. So we're playing this epic game of Uno Attack and a 14-year-old says, you are sitting at a table Jesus would have flipped. We hadn't even been talking about that series or about that bottom line. And I was like, praise the Lord, that is a ministry win. And so um, hopefully this is finding its way into your life and into your conversations. And what's happening in here is making its way out there, whether it's your workplace or your family place. Today, we're going to be looking at a message titled, Missing Tables. Missing Tables. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 24. And if that sounds somewhat familiar, if you've been around this year, we started the year with a series titled, Unexpected. And the first message in that series was titled, Paradigm Shift. And we looked at this passage. And you might say, well, why are you preaching on it again? Don't you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and or Matthew, Mark, and John all covered this as well. And they did, but Luke includes a few details that always catch my attention, and they're particularly pertinent to this message today. And he gives a little longer narrative of the actual table that Jesus set for us as his followers as it plays out with the table he sets for his disciples. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, if you've got one of our in, in the seats in front of you, there are Bibles. If you grab one of those, it's on page 1637. And one of the details that has always stood out from Luke's narrative of this scene is when Jesus tells his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. And that always sits pretty deep with me because of all that it entailed. And we'll get into some of that. And if you really want to deep dive on it, that message from Unexpected One, um, the first series or the first uh, series of the year, I think it was January, second, second weekend of the year, um, would be a great place to go into that. But here's what, what Jesus um, or what Luke tells us about this setting in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 24. These are Jesus's final days on earth. This is coming down to the wire. This is Thursday, the day before he, he dies. And I'm going to read through it and we'll have a few brief comments and then we'll dig a little deeper in a few places. 
But Luke writes this, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Now you might think, okay, if you've ever read it, you know know that this time Passover was a really big deal. And people came from all around the world to Jerusalem at Passover. And so as you read this, you might be thinking, okay, so they're supposed to go find a guy carrying a jar of water. Um, There's like a million people in Jerusalem right now, Jesus. uh, You might want to break this down. But one of the commentaries that I read on this passage um, pointed out something interesting. That was guys didn't carry water jars at this time. That was something that women did. Typically, female servants in a house would carry the water jar. So this would stand out. This would jump out and catch their attention. And they could be looking for There wouldn't be hundreds or thousands of guys carrying water jars. There would just be one or two perhaps. And so uh, that helps a little bit. There was some intentionality with that. So he says, follow him, this man with the water jar, to the house he enters and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. So they left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And it makes you wonder, had he already set this up? I mean, he's been in town all week, so, so maybe he made arrangements when the disciples weren't paying attention. Or maybe this is more of a divine act, a miraculous act of God that, that all of this is, is set up and that there were angels maybe that visited these people. We don't really know, but we do know that Jesus prepared this moment with intentionality and he involved the disciples in it as well. So picking up in verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And that phrase in verse 15 always catches my attention, that Jesus was eagerly desiring this Passover. He knew the paradigm shift that was taking place, even though They didn't. He knew all that was going to be accomplished in the cosmic scene over these next 48 to 72 hours, even though they didn't. And so when he says he's eagerly desired this, the original language is actually the same word in two different tenses back to back. It's epithumia, epithumesa. He's basically saying, I've desired and desired. <laughs> like, you know, someone I think about a little kid telling a story. And I desired and I desired. Like, he is so excited. He's got his heart set on this. He's passionately longing for this day. And I went deep into why that was the case and all that, was, that went into this and the paradigm shift that it, that it entails in that first message of the Unexpected series. But it's safe to say that that Jesus, this was no ordinary event for him. He was eagerly desiring this. And he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I think each one of those phrases is very significant. And so he continues in verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. And so what was the Passover feast turns into what we call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. And depending on their age, the disciples had done this many times. This was an annual festival. And this was the point where things got off script. This was the point where Jesus said, no, this isn't just the afikomen, the, the bread that, you know, of the Passover feast. This is my body given for you. And these cups, these don't just point back and point forward. These are my blood. And so I want you to think about as we prepare to partake in the elements of communion, maybe do some quick mental math. How many times have you participated in communion? If you grew up in certain traditions, maybe communion was a weekly event for you. And you can do some quick math and say, you know, we probably made it 40 times a year or 45 times a year, or we got the gold star for perfect attendance once or twice. Do the math. Maybe you've been coming to Linwood for decades, and we typically do this on the first Sunday of the month. And you say, well, in an average year, maybe we make it to 10 or 12 or 6 or 8 or 2 or 3. You just do the math. But for the majority of us, there have been many times that we've participated in communion. And so if something radically different took place, that would really get our attention. And that's what's going on here. And so it's setting the table. This is not an ordinary Passover feast. This is not an ordinary experience for the disciples. Something major is happening. And he clarifies it a little further in verse 20. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Now we know something they didn't know. We know because the first six verses of this chapter tell us about Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. But the people around the table didn't know that. That was just Jesus and Judas that were aware that that had taken place. And so this is more earth-shattering news. This is more like, what are you talking about? It's going to come from within us? And instead of coming alongside Jesus, and instead of expressing support and encouragement and rallying around him, as you might expect, (laughs) they began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this? They began to question among themselves which of them it might be, and then in the next verse we find out that a dispute arose among them as to which one was considered the greatest. Now, you might be saying, well, how did they get from there to there? Well, if you have little kids, you understand exactly how this went. It's like, not going to be me, not going to be me, certainly not going to be me. I'm the greatest here, right? So I wouldn't do something. You're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. And you can see how this would take place. And yet, if you put yourself in that setting, it's kind of hard to imagine. And so here's the bottom line today. Don't miss the table. Jesus has prepared for you. Don't miss the table Jesus prepared for you. And there's a number of different applications of that. If you're listening to this message and you recognize, like, I've never sat at a table with Jesus. I've never come into that new covenant that he's talking about where his blood shed on the cross is the forgiveness for my sins. I've, I've missed that table. Then today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day when you take a seat at that table with Jesus and you accept the gift of his grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness for you. Don't miss the table Jesus prepared for you. But I think there's a secondary meaning to that. 
as is often the case. And it's easy for us to read this passage and to focus on Judas as the one who missed the table. We know that he has agreed to betray Jesus. We don't know 100% why. We know from other gospel accounts that he would steal money, so maybe he was blinded by greed. We know from other places in Scripture that Satan literally entered him to lead him down this path. Maybe he was jealous of some of the other disciples and decided to bring the whole enterprise down. It's always Peter, James, and John. It's never Peter, James, and Judas. And he decided that he wanted to, to bring the whole enterprise down. We don't know what his motivations were, but we do know that he betrayed his rabbi, his earthly master, somebody he'd been following around for over three years, somebody that he had witnessed every single miracle. He had heard every single teaching. And yet something happened in Judas's life that got him to the point that he would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe 30 days wages, some commentaries would indicate. So a month's salary. And he didn't just betray Jesus, he also betrayed the disciples. He betrayed the people that he had been doing life with for the last three and a half years. And some scholars are baffled that there weren't 12 crosses, right? Because typically that's how Rome dealt with insurrection. If you were leading a rebellion, and that was the charge, if you were leading a rebellion, then it wasn't just the leader, it was anybody who had followed. And so he puts their lives in great danger and great peril. And so it's really easy to focus on Judas here as the one that's missing the table, and that kind of lets us off the hook. But if you read the passage, the disciples missed it too, every single one of them. They missed it just as much in that moment as Judas did. No, they weren't actively engaged in bringing Jesus down. They weren't the betrayers. But when he shares this news with them, they look inward. They don't come to Jesus' aid. They don't come to console him or to, to come alongside him. They defend themselves. It's not going to be me. At least my hands are clean. And that quickly devolves into an argument about which one of them is the greatest. They're sitting in the presence of Jesus. They've seen him do all the miracles. They've heard all the teachings. They know he is the greatest. And yet they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. Thanks to the miracles of modern technology, we have emoji keyboards now. And there's an emoji that is perfect for this moment, right? It's the face palm, right? Are you kidding me? Here Jesus is about to suffer and die for them, for all of us. And yet, he's been eagerly desiring to eat this Passover with them. He knows where it's leading. He knows that there's a cross tomorrow morning. He knows all of that, and he didn't allow the dread of what's coming. He knew that in a few hours he's going to be on his knees before the Lord, before God's presence, sweating drops of blood begging if there's any way for this to pass, that it could pass. And yet saying, not my will, but yours. He knew all of that, and he didn't allow the dread of that to keep him from eagerly desiring to eat this Passover with his friends before he suffers. And so you have to think he was desiring some fellowship. He was desiring some friendship, some support, some encouragement, and he gets just the opposite. Thankfully, he was also, I believe, eagerly desiring all that this was going to create. He was eagerly desiring the new covenant. He was eagerly desiring 
the victory over sin and death on our behalves. And so if we're honest, if we're really, really honest, we can find ourselves in this story as well. So when our bottom line says, don't miss the table that is prepared for you, that Jesus prepared for you, it also, I think, can say, don't miss the table Jesus prepares for you, prepares for me, prepares for each of us. Each and every day, he sets the table for us and eagerly desires fellowship with us. And so how often do we miss it? How often do we ignore it or or walk past it because we're too busy or we're too distracted or we're too rushed? And yet perhaps, just perhaps, hypothetically, we still have time for cable news or we still have time for social media or we still have time for, I don't know what the games that people are playing on cell phones are right now. Uh, It was Angry Birds and Bejeweled Blitz for me for a long time and I could waste an hour a day on words with friends, and be too busy for time in God's word, for time in prayer. So how often do we miss it? How often do we miss it? Because we're more focused on ourselves. Even when we do get our Bible open, all we can think about is ourselves and our program and what's going on in my world, and not, God, what are you trying to do in this world, and how can I come alongside you and be a part of it? We're too focused, and I've been in this boat many times. Even in ministry, I'm more focused on my agenda and everything that I need God to do so that my program will work. Instead of saying, God, what's on your agenda today? Where do I need to be reconciled with somebody? Where do I need to confess? Where do I need to get right? Who do I need to share the good news of your grace with? And so we see that among the disciples. And if we're honest, we can see it ourselves among the disciples at times. And even if we're really, really good, like, I don't know about you, and you guys are probably like, go ahead and move on, Pastor Mark. This is getting uncomfortable. But I've been guilty of just putting God in a little 15-minute-a-day box called devotional, and I'll go do my devotional, and I'll read my chapter, and I'll share my scripture on Facebook, and yay, I'm a good Christian. I get my Christian star for the day. And then I move on. And I leave him in that little box called devotional, and I forget that he's far more interested in devotion throughout the day than he is whether or not I did my devotional today. And he has a vision for our lives that involves moment-by-moment fellowship with him, that he's involved in every aspect of life. And yes, maybe you work as an accountant, or you work as a nurse, or you work as as a mechanic or you work as a teacher and he's like bring me into that let's do that together let's have a conversational experience throughout the day where I'm we're we're interacting and I'm in the midst of every aspect of your life throughout the day and so as I was thinking about that I couldn't help but think about a couple of stories that highlight this, a couple of passages of Scripture that really point to this. And the first one that came to mind is from the Old Testament. It's the story of David and Mephibosheth. And maybe you're familiar with this one, or maybe you're like, Mephibosheth who? Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. And so when David becomes king, and you can read all about this in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're not going to go there and, and read the whole thing. Um, But what was typically the pattern at this time in the world was that when there was a new king on the throne, they would round up everybody that was related to the old king and 
kill them so that there was less of a chance of an uprising. And it was a show of power and it was a show of strength. David does something interesting. David, sitting in his kingly court one day, says, Is there anyone left of the household of Saul? Which they were probably expecting at some point, but they weren't expecting the second half of that sentence where he says, That I may show kindness to. And they're like, What? Well, there's this one son of Jonathan. Now, Jonathan and David, they were like best friends. Not just friends, they were like brothers, right? If you read about their story and the connection that they make. And so he finds out that there's this son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. And David says, bring him to me. And we find out in the narrative that that he's crippled. He's been crippled since he was a young child, this Mephibosheth. And, And so he's literally carried into the king's presence. He can't get there on his own. And he falls on his face before the king, kind of expecting the worst. And David says, no, I'm, I want to show kindness to you. And he says, why? Why a dead dog like me? Would you have anything to do with me? And he says, because you're Jonathan's son. And he not only treats him favorably, he restores all of Saul's property, which was a lot of property, right? He restores all of Saul's property to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth goes from being a crippled beggar to one of the wealthiest people in Israel. And he doesn't stop there. He says, you know what, from now on, Mephibosheth, you're going to sit at my table. My table, which has an apron in front of it, so that nobody can see that you're crippled. You're just one of my honored guests from this point. How do you think Mephibosheth felt about King David? Do you think he was filled with gratitude and love and devotion? And what's so powerful about that story and why I love to tell that story is because that story is my story. That there is a king on the throne. His name is Jesus. And he said, who can I show God's favor to? And somebody introduced me to Jesus and brought me to Jesus and I became an heir to the inheritance that Jesus makes available. And it's your story if you're in Christ. And if you're not, it can be. It can be your story. Mephibosheth didn't miss the table that was prepared for him. There's a second story that comes to mind, and it's from the end of the Bible. Clear out in Revelation chapter 3, the last book of the Bible. Jesus says something as he's speaking to the different churches through the Apostle John late in his life. He says in Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. You've heard this one, right? If anybody opens the door, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and we will... I will eat with him and he with me. And we'll have fellowship together, basically, is what Jesus is saying. And it's interesting, when you look at that, like, I don't know about you. When I was a little kid and I heard that, I kind of thought, well, Jesus, like some homeless guy, you know, knocking on the door. Hey, got any food? No, 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 no. He's writing to a church. He owns the house. He's knocking on the door to see if his servants are ready to welcome him in, to receive him. And he does the unthinkable. He invites them to the table with him and says, you'll eat with me and I'll eat with you. That's a master and a servant relationship. Jesus is the master. He's writing to the church. The church is his bride. He's the bridegroom. And he's saying, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear it and you welcome me in, we'll share a meal together. 
Not just you serving me, and once I've had my fill, maybe you can have the scraps. That was the way it usually went. No, he says, we're going to have a meal together. And I believe he sets the table for us every day, and he stands at the door and knocks every day, and he says, will you welcome me in? Will you receive me? Will you invite me in that we could sit down and feast on my word together and spend time in prayer and communion together and experience fellowship together? Do we eagerly desire that as faithful servants? ready to welcome him in, ready to serve him, ready to invite him in. And it strikes me that this was written to the church at Laodicea. That's the church that's known as the lukewarm church, right? He says, you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were one or the other. We know this, right? Like iced coffee, that's good. Hot coffee, that's really good, especially on a day like today. Lukewarm coffee, that's not good. You get a mouthful of that, you're ready to spit it out. And that's basically what Jesus says to this church. They were lukewarm. They were not actively rejecting Jesus, but they weren't actively seeking him either. They were just kind of indifferent. And he says, I, you know, I'm knocking on the door. I'm eagerly desiring fellowship with you. We welcome you in. Can we share that meal together? And so I wonder, where, where does this message hit you? Where does this bottom line, don't miss the table prepared for you, hit you? Are you in the, the group that maybe is actively avoiding or rejecting or neglecting that table, that experience? And you fill your life with stuff to keep you busy because you're not quite sure you want all the life change that will come if you start getting the word in your heart and get a relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you, it is so much better. God's vision for your life is so much better than your reality. Whatever it may be, he has a vision for your life. If you are actively rejecting and avoiding and neglecting that relationship with him, it'll change you, yes, but it will change you for the better. And there will be joy unspeakable and full of glory on the other side of that. Maybe you're in a, a group that's more like what I talked about segmenting your life. And you kind of have the devotional box and you go visit the devotional box. And then you kind of put the lid back on that and you go about your life. And you keep him in that nice little box. And so whichever of those two you're in, you know, our mission statement is to reach people for Christ, to reach people that are far from God for Christ and bring Jesus to them. And it's to give them a place to belong, but it's also to help them grow in their faith. And that's why I'm always telling you to read your Bible. And that's why I'm always encouraging you to pick up a Banding Together journal and spend time in God's word every day. Read a chapter a day. Fill out the journal. Write down a scripture, a verse that stands out to you, a few observations, an application of that to your life in a prayer. And then maybe you could do something really wild and get involved in a group of other people that are doing the same thing and you could share. And the people that do this, they tell me, this is great. We love this. This is a deeper fellowship. It's a deeper community than we've had in other, other times. I'm closer to God than I have ever been. And I was thinking about that last statement of our mission statement to help them grow in their faith. And I wonder if, if you can think to, are you currently in a season of spiritual growth that you would say, I am growing I am growing spiritually. And if not, have you had those seasons in your life? And if you have, what were you doing then that you're not doing now? Like sometimes we make this really complicated. And it's as simple as time in the word, time in prayer, reflecting, personalizing it with that pen and your paper. And sometimes people tell me, I just read the Bible and I don't understand it, Pastor Mark. 
But I would venture a guess that the more you read it, the more you would understand it. And if you plugged into a good resource, like a good study Bible, yes, it will take you a few minutes longer because sometimes there's more text in the study Bible portion than there is on the scripture portion, right? Especially in the New Testament. But if you read those things, you would learn things and you would understand how to apply those things to your life. Or maybe you could go to the Bible Project on YouTube. Those are a tremendous resource. If you watch a Bible Project video on a chapter of the Bible or a book of the Bible before you read it, it will make so much more sense. And you'll be able to see how it applies to your life. And so, you know, sometimes people say, it's just really hard to read Scripture, and they move on. And yet their handicap drops a little bit each year, right? Because they take lessons, and they invest time and resources in practicing their golf swing, and they get better. They overcome the difficulty on the front end. And, And maybe there's something else for you, an area, a hobby, where you've got some passion. And so you're willing to invest the time and the energy and the interest in that transfer that here because let me tell you there is so much that is available to us through God's word and he eagerly desires that fellowship with us so don't miss the table Jesus prepared for you I'd like to invite the worship team to come up as we prepare to transition into a time of communion today the table has been set And here at Linwood, we serve what's called an open communion. And that means that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you can follow the one instruction that he gave to his followers, that as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of him, then you're welcome at our table. You don't have to be a member. You can be a visitor or a guest. You don't have to have your name on some membership role or something like that. If you have children that are with you and and they are desiring to participate and you're confident that they understand what this means, then they're welcome at the table as well. And you may come forward to receive the elements during this song at any point in time, whenever you're ready. If you need to come to an altar and kneel and confess something or receive something or make a declaration of something, then feel the freedom to do that. These next few moments are for you to experience that fellowship with God. If there's something that needs to be confessed, you can confess it. If there's something that needs to be received, you can receive it. Do come forward when you're ready, as you're ready, and then hold those elements, and I'll come back at the end of the song, and we'll partake of them together. I firmly believe that Jesus eagerly desires to celebrate this communion, this Lord's Supper, with you today. And my hope and my prayer is that it might be a turning point in your relationship with him and maybe even your life. The song that we're going to sing is titled Carried to the Table. And it's a beautiful song that paints a picture of that story, David and Mephibosheth. And so I pray that it will minister to you and, and inspire you towards the humility and the gratitude and the devotion that is ours to give to our Lord and Savior. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. So thankful for who you are and so thankful for all that you have done. We're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the table that has been set for us. Not only today, but each day. And we pray that you will help us to open that door and to welcome you in and to spend that time and to get in the habit, if we're not already in the habit, of spending that time with you. And maybe, Lord... It's our place to to invite somebody else to the table. Maybe that's our response today. Whatever our response is, Lord, may we be a people who respond in faith to what we have heard 
to what you have said. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.